0: Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians. We are in chapter 2, so don't be alarmed when I tell you that we're going to begin reading in verse 27 of chapter 1. We are moving forward, but we are going to read into chapter 2 a little bit in the text just to remind ourselves of what we covered last week. Steve, you'll be happy to know I used your bookmark. Steve passed this out to us all on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago. I haven't memorized it yet, but it did tell me where Philippians was this morning. So, very well. Verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation and that from God for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me therefore if there is any consolation in Christ if any comfort of love But also for the interests of others. So I think it's appropriate to read uh, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 4, because chapter 2 begins clearly as a continuation of thought from Paul. In verse 27, he says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Now he speaks to it a little bit in the immediate verses that follow verse 27. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, and he goes on to say that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he adds instruction about, look, don't be terrified of your enemies, but the summary of let your conduct be worthy of the gospel is described to us very briefly in verse 27 at the end of it, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he resumes that theme in chapter 2, verse 1, where we begin with the word, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection of mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, which sounds very much like how verse 27 ended, that you are striving together with one mind. Here... Verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, united in love, being of one accord, of one mind. So we get the strong sense that while we might say a life worthy of the gospel will include a great deal of things, what Paul has in mind particularly is the idea of unity in and among this church in Philippi. Unity in and among the church in Philippi. Because he uses unifying words. Stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So clearly he has in mind here that the Philippian church should read and understand from his letter that this life that's worthy of the gospel is worthy of the gospel in terms of Christian community and fellowship with one another. In other words, it's it's not worthy of the gospel to be outside of Christian community. It's worthy of the gospel to be In one accord, striving together with one mind for the faith in Christian community. It's not worthy of the gospel to be in Christian community, but then to be striving and having conflicts with each other. It's worthy of the gospel to be of one accord, as it says in verse 2. So this is what we're challenged to think on. And it begins, I think, we'll just do two parts because I know we need to end somewhat early uh, to observe the Lord's Supper and not run just totally longer than we should. But two parts. The first part is just recognize Paul's pastoral plea here. Now, Paul is not what we would call a traditional pastor. He has not attached himself to one local body where he is, you know, working very diligently to, to shepherd them. Now, we know Paul believes and has said that those people should exist in local communities. So, I mean, he, he, he tells Titus, you know, go around and appoint uh, elders and pastors in every place because they need to exist. But we would not call Paul, as we see his ministry unfold here, a pastor. We would call him more missional, more like a missionary because he's going from city to city with the idea of starting a church, planting a church, sharing the gospel, and then installing pastors to do the ongoing work as he moves on. And yet here, it's impossible to miss a pastoral heart in Paul. Now, what I mean by that, a pastoral heart, um, a sense of pleading from Paul that this local church in Philippi behave in their own little local community as the gospel um, would call them to behave in a, in a way worthy of the gospel. Now, a missionary is, we think, mostly concerned with seeing uh, evangelism performed and people come to the Lord and establishing something where something was not, very evangelistic, very sharing the gospel in tone. But when we think of a pastor, while there certainly is evangelism, the word pastor is the word shepherd. So we get the, you know, the, the Latin word for shepherd, being pastor. We get, that's what we get the sense of here. And a shepherd, while not opposed to seeing the flock grow and certainly wants to see people be saved, his main task is working inside of the flock for their benefit and their growth, for what's worthy, for what's right in and among them. I mean, that's what I'm doing today. I'm teaching here. Um, and we see the pleading of a pastor in Paul. Notice the repetition. I mean, you get a sense of it here in verse 1. Listen to how repetitive it is. If there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, what is he doing? I mean, is he just having trouble finishing his sentence? No, he's pleading, right? He's making a plea. Almost like a, a, a parent would to a wayward child or... Or it's the kind of plea where you're like, please, I want you to do the right thing. And and you're saying the same thing. If you love me at all, if you care about this at all, if you're at all concerned about your future. I mean, it's that kind of pleading tone. He picks it up again with the kind of repetitive plea. Later on, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We could argue those are all saying the same thing. I mean, love might be a little bit different, but the others? I mean, literally, he starts, fulfill my joy by being like minded, and ends the sentence by saying, of one mind. That's pretty repetitive. He's pleading. Every phrase is not a new teaching or a new doctrinal revelation, a new piece of knowledge to be memorized. He's speaking as it were, I would speak to you or you might speak to someone else. Now, why do we plea for people? We plea for people when we think we have something important that perhaps they aren't taking as seriously as they should. That's when you plea for someone. You don't get repetitive like this and pour your heart out and make a plea to someone when you think that you're... Importance that you place on a subject is aligned with the importance that they place on a subject. You don't plead because you don't have to. I mean, if I say something to somebody and I'm convinced that they heard me the first time and they are totally aligned with the significance of what I'm saying, I don't plead with them. I don't don't belabor the point on and on, but there's something that Paul is concerned about here. He's concerned that, oh yeah, yeah, church fellowship and Christian unity and like-mindedness, yeah, we understand. Yeah, we got that. But he's not not accepting of that kind of dismissive tone to these things. He's pleading with them. This is really important. Now, we're all very different people, and that's not a bad thing. Here, being of the same mind or like-minded does not mean that we forfeit all of our individuality. In fact, that's not a biblical concept. And we could go to lots of places to see this. 1 Corinthians 12 comes to mind where we're told about the great diversity of spiritual gifts that God gives to His people and how He uses people very differently within the body of Christ. This is not a plea for uh, a kind of Christian cloning whereby everyone is on the same group think all the time. That's not what this is. Um, The potter, if you will, fashions us in a creative way, not the mindless droning out of one assembly line piece after another assembly line piece after another assembly line piece. God is the creator. He is creative, and he makes us each differently. And he calls us to different purposes, and yet there is great overlap when we come together in Christian community into what those purposes might be. So, Single-mindedness or one-mindedness is not the same as a forfeiture of all individuality. Instead, I would define what this call is here is is a call to the mind of Christ. That's what I would call this, the mind of Christ, which is a a biblical phrase. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, this is in verse 16 if you want to turn there. You can just listen if not. He writes to the church in Corinth, for who has known the mind of the Lord that that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We can't pretend like we know the mind of God and we can stand up and teach him what's right and wrong or what should be done or what shouldn't be done. And yet, he says, we do have the mind of Christ. And he says, and brethren, this is again, this is, chap- this is verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 3. Brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, um, but as to carnal people like babes in Christ. I, he's saying, when I was with you, I had to speak to you like you were small little children. And he doesn't commend that. He says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, like you would a baby. For until now you were not able to receive anything more and even now you're still not able to that's a pretty damning thing to say to someone about their spiritual growth right like when i was with you and i was talking to you i had to talk to you just with the most uh, the essential milk that a believer has to hear and i couldn't go any deeper i couldn't go you know any more there was nothing that you were you weren't ready to chew on anything challenging to speak to you as, as small children, and you're still not ready for more challenging things, and then here's his conclusion, this is why I'm, I'm reading from here, because you are still carnal, you're still very worldly, now what does he mean by that, thankfully he explains, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, and behaving like mere men. Um, The mind of Christ, which is what Paul is calling us to in Philippians, is not a call to knowledge, okay? This has nothing to do with intelligence or with with Bible knowledge. That's not what the mind of Christ that he's calling us to here is. Now, I don't want to diminish knowledge. Christianity is a thinking person's faith, But that's not the mind of Christ that he has in focus here. The mind of Christ is a way of viewing the world. It is a mindset. And to have this mind is to be mature, ready for more deep things, ready for solid food. To not have this mindset is to be carnal, to be spiritually infantile, to be worldly. And the mind of Christ is relational. It's relational. It's not about how much you have memorized or how many deep doctrines you understand. It is expressed in relationships. And here Paul is telling the Corinthian church, from what I just read, there are things of knowledge and understanding that are concerning our faith that I would like to share with you, but I can't. Because you don't know the mind of Christ as you should. And the evidence of that is in your relationships with each other. In other words, there is a knowledge threshold that even if you were to memorize every saying, and even if I were to give it to you and you just were in dictation writing it all down, and even if you could understand the words on the page, you're too childish for it to have any meaningful purpose in your life. Because... You don't have the mind of the Lord governing your relationships with other people. The evidence that you don't have the mind of Christ is in your internal strife and conflict and envy. Now, he's not saying they don't have it at all, but they don't have it as they should. So there's a pastoral plea here. Paul cannot have complete or fulfilled joy while there is conflict in the Philippian church. That's why he says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded in verse 2. Now he's already said that he's rejoicing in his circumstances in his life. He's not down and depressed because of the fact that he's a prisoner. He's going to rejoice that the gospel is being shared, that the gospel is being spread, and yet his joy is incomplete if when he thinks of God's people in Philippi, he thinks of conflict and strife and things not as they should be. Conflict is evidence that the mind of Christ is not the predominant worldview. And that means danger. There is, skipping ahead if you are curious, um, a note of this in Philippians chapter 4. In the second verse of Philippians 4, Paul says in his closing remarks, I implore Eodia and I implore Sintash to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's two women who are not getting along in the Philippians you know, fellowship. And in his closing remarks, he drops whatever curtain is there and says, I implore you two women, calls both by name in a letter, that it'd be a little humbling. <laughs> You can see the eyes of the congregation. Be of the same mind in the Lord. So, second part of the sermon. What is the mind of Christ? Well, um, the mind of Christ is, believe it or not, what governs our actions. This is an idea from Jesus that when we do things, we don't just do them because, you know, we think of them spur of the moment. But we do what comes out of the heart. We do what comes out of our thinking, what comes out of our convictions. Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. When we act as we shouldn't, it means internally our thinking, our convictions are not where they should be. Here Paul says in Philippians 2, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. How does one stop doing things from selfishness and conceit? It's easy to nod our heads and say, yeah, that makes sense. We should not act out of selfishness. We should not act out of a sense of our own self-worth. But the how of avoiding that is going to require an internal change in our worldview, and that's the mind of Christ. He says, but in lowliness of mind, that's uh, verse 3 from Philippians 2 here, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, again, I'm, I'm making the case that what Paul has in mind is not false humility or, okay, I should do this and help other people, but there actually is a Christian mindset. The mind of Christ, and this mind of Christ takes, as it were, a lowly view of oneself in relationship to the world and other people around us. And I call this the mind of Christ, which is the language Paul uses in Corinthians. But here, I believe we can call it the mind of Christ because of the example which he's going to go on to give us. Now look at the example. He says... Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, that's the selfishness part, but also for the interests of others, which aligns to verse 3. Think of others as better than himself. Now, here's his example in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mind of Christ. In other words, this is how Jesus saw the world and the people around him. Let this So how do I go from living life selfishly and conceitedly to obeying this command that I live my life in a way that's worthy of the gospel? Well, you have to have the mind of Christ, and the example is Jesus himself. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God... Now if anyone has the right to be conceited it would be a man walking on the earth who had been god like that would be that would be a reason for conceitedness of you know conce- self elevation i'm an important person and yet it says who being in the form of god did not consider it robbery to be equal with god but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. When Jesus came to this earth to live a sinless life and to die on the cross for sinners, he did not look at his lowly position, being in flesh and blood, and compare it to his prior position, Union with the Father as God and say, I've been robbed of something. He didn't consider the condition he found himself in, which was the form of a man. It says here the form of a bondservant. We were created to serve God. (laughs) He didn't look at this new positional alignment and say, I've been robbed. He didn't protest and say, what's going on? In fact, it says... And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That's the lowliness of mind here. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, that is the mind of Christ. Who humbled himself, though he was God, though he is God humbled himself to meet the needs of others. Though he knows he deserves worship, dies for the worshipers, offers his life for the needs of others. The word lowliness in Philippians chapter 2, when it says lowliness of mind, it's from the word creatureliness. In other words, it's the idea of I am not, the Creator, I am not God, I am a creature. And and this is what we read of Jesus, and being found in the form of a creature, of a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. Um, When I prepare to preach and teach, I'm always going through a book, kind of verse by verse like I am now. And... As I work through the process of the passage that I'm getting ready to preach or teach on, I'll read Bible commentaries um, to see the conclusions that others have drawn, just to make sure I'm not messing something up or missing something important. There's a Bible commentary that I've been using in my study of the Philippians by Gordon Fee. It's an NIV Bible commentary. It's really good. Concerning this, this is what he writes. Listen to this. In the Old Testament, the term indicates lowliness in the sense of creatureliness and the truly humble show themselves to be so by resting their case with God rather than trusting their own strength and machinations. Humility, then, is not to be confused with false modesty or with the kind of abject servility that only repulses people wherein the humble person gains more self-serving attention than he or she could do otherwise. But rather, it has to do with the proper estimation of oneself, the stance of the creature before the Creator, utterly dependent and trusting. Here, one is well aware both of one's weaknesses and of one's glory. And we do have glory because we are made in His image, after all. But this humility makes neither too much nor too little of either. True humility is therefore not self-focused at all. But rather, as further defined in Paul in verse 4, looks not to one's own concerns but to others. When Jesus makes his appeal to people to come to him in Matthew chapter 11, he makes an appeal that people should come to him because... He is gentle and lowly in heart. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the Prince of the Almighty God. This is the one who rules and reigns at the right hand of God. And He makes His appeal that you come to Him and you trust Him with your life because take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You know, he he offers his hand to sinners and says, If you come to me, um, you will find a Savior who loves you and who would serve you and who has served you lowly and humble. And I will serve you in a way that provides rest for you. Not conflict, not torment, not... You will have rest for your souls if you come to me. When Paul says to esteem others better than ourselves, he does not mean that we are to think of other people as better than us. But rather, as those whose needs surpass my own. Um, That's what Christ did for us, and that's what we're getting ready to remember together in the Lord's Supper. Jesus served God, and he served us. By recognizing us as those whose needs surpassed his own. And so he was willing to give his life in service for our needs at the command of God. And if we have have that mindset towards others in the church and the community around us. Then we will have the mind of Christ. And we will be truly humble and not merely professing. Humility. Um, You are a child of God, and in that there is great elevation. You will rule and reign with Christ if you are a Christian someday. God has given you the right to be joint heirs with Jesus of an eternal kingdom. So when we say we should have humility and serve each other, it's not saying, well, I'm really nothing, I'm really nothing, I'm really nothing. No, you may be deserving of nothing, but you aren't nothing. You're something. And yet, the mind of Christ sees the needs of others as more pressing than their own. And what better example do we have of that than Jesus? The King of kings who went to a cross for our need. Let's bow with the word of prayer. And as I do so, men who are going to serve at Pastor Steve's discretion come forward. Father, there is more to say from Philippians chapter two and the great statement, the great doctrinal statements made there. I'm sure I butchered them and and sometimes misstated, but I'm thankful for your grace. What I hope is clear this morning to everyone as we turn our attention to remembering the sacrifice that you made for us. Is that we were sinners without God and without hope in the world. And you sent your son because you loved us. And he lived a perfect life. And he endured the mocking and the ridicule and the shame. From those around him. Who rejected his lowliness and mistook it for nothingness. And not recognizing their Messiah they crucified the Lord of glory. And yet in their rebellion, you poured out your judgment on our sin. So that now we might say in faith that Jesus has been the substitution in our place to appease your judgment. That we might be atoned by the sacrifice of this sinless Son of God. And now though we are still sinful, we might be called your children. By this exchange, we no longer come before you as criminals, before their judge. But as sons and daughters before their father. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. In whose name we pray.